So I was at the gym. This was last December, and I'd only been a climate organizer for a few months at this point. But I was on the tricep machine, and my workout playlist was blaring some hip-hop. And there was this cute girl on the machine next to me, and she smiled at me, and I tried to play it cool and keep going with my workout. Sweat was beginning to bead on my forehead, and I continued to work my set. I was counting my reps. One, two, three, four. But then everything just went kind of still. Because the news that morning hit me. The music in my earbuds died down, and all I could hear were the words of the newest climate report. 11,000 climate scientists warn of untold human suffering. Bad news for me and every other human on planet Earth. The words spiral deeper. Suffering, disaster, loss of land and life. My arms gave out and the weights crashed down in the machine, but I still held the heaviness in my gut and in my legs. The weight of the news pressed against my chest and I couldn't breathe. Tears and sweat rolled down my face. This was a panic attack. So I wandered, dazed and numb, out of the gym double doors and into the December morning air. I wandered down the street, laid back on the curb, and tried to feel the warmth of the sun while I counted breaths. My heart beat fast and hard against the band of my sports bra. I walked into the gym, gripped in the first stage of grief, denial. But when I left, body numbed, but heart tender and swollen, I moved into a new stage of climate grief. A confluence of anger, depression, and sharp existential fear. My relationship with climate change was forever changed. This is A Matter of Degrees. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Nikayla Jefferson. And together, we're telling stories for the climate curious. So folks, this week we invited someone on the show to share her climate journey with all of us, Nikayla Jefferson. She's a researcher and a climate justice activist. So Nikayla, tell us, why did you want to start this episode with a story about grief? It sounds like a story of outright panic. Yeah, that day, for whatever reason, the reality of climate change really hit me. And I could no longer be in emotional denial about what was going on. And why do you think about climate change in terms of grief? You know, it's a pretty specific way of framing the issue. Well, it's something that I'm really worried about. And I'm worried that most people, even people who claim to care about climate change a lot, are still in the first stage of grief, denial. It's like most of the world lives in this state, right? Even if you've seen the impacts of climate change up close, even if you felt the tropical winds whip your cheeks, even if you stood in floodwater knee-deep in your own home, you watched a fire come down the ridgeline, said, wow, I can't remember a summer this hot. Even if you've read the reports, you follow the news, you call yourself a climate champion, you would literally welcome a backyard wind turbine or cover your roof in solar. Maybe you're a vegan. I don't know. Unless you felt the anger or the sadness or the true fear, you are likely stuck in climate denial. And Nikayla, I think Leah and I have our own experiences moving through these stages of climate grief that we could share. But 
the stages of grief that you want to talk about in this episode aren't exactly the same as ours, right? This is an episode about Black climate grief specifically. Yeah, I think that as a Black person, grieving the planet can be a bit different. It can feel heavier and more immediate because the Black climate movement wasn't really born out of the environmental movement. Like, I'm not an environmentalist. I feel like that's a term used by white people who donate to the Sierra Club or started some kind of community recycling program. And for them, the environment ends there. It's a relationship grounded in a sense of duty to protect the natural world. It's about preservation and conservation of rugged forests or pristine waters. These are the same people that say, well, I know some good police officers. And these are the same people that say, well, people make their own choices in life. You know, I think this is so spot on, Nikayla. The climate movement, even in the last year, I think has gone through a big reckoning over the exact issues that you're raising here. Is our movement about protecting ecosystems and, you know, other species, which of course is valuable and important, but are we ignoring our fellow humans with black, brown, indigenous skin and saying, oh, their worries, their woes, those aren't at the heart of the climate movement, which is really quite ignorant when you think about where fossil fuel infrastructure is going in those communities' backyards. And I think it speaks to a failure in large part by white environmentalism, to understand the climate crisis not just as a standalone problem, but as a manifestation of a system that is generating lots of crises that we face, right? And if we're just thinking, as you're saying, Nikayla, about just the forests or just the water or just a particular species, we're not getting the bigger picture, Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, too. Before we save a local endangered bird, we need to protect our own people and ensure their survival in our environment. We got to address things like the fracking wells that are next to schools. And then you have things like trucks that blow through these communities and and blow exhaust and people have to breathe that in. You're right, Nikayla. I mean, these things end up manifesting in facts like black children having asthma rates two times as high as white children. And I think it also means that when we talk about climate grief, it's a different thing in the black community. It's it's in some ways a bigger thing. Yeah. So what, Nikayla, does black climate grief look like to you? It can look like a lot of things. Um, But for me, (laughs) apparently, it looks like having a panic attack at the gym. It can also look like taking some climate action. So during my panic attack, I called my mom because, you know, that's who you call. And she talked me through it. But on the walk home, I decided that if I was going to be emotionally consumed by the climate crisis... I needed the people in power to see the emotional toll that this crisis takes on young Black people. So I went home and I googled City Hall. I went to Michael's and I bought some art supplies for my Declare a Climate Emergency poster. And then I took this poster and I sat in the lobby of the city council for seven days. I talked to the elected officials and their staff, and I gave public comment that brought the room to tears, and I did it all for climate change. 
And in the end, I wrote the final declaration of a climate emergency that was passed in San Diego. Because I am deep in depression and grief, and I cannot sit idle by and watch my future slide into the sea, I decided to sit on your lobby floor because you all offer something we desperately need. Hope. Give us hope. Give us a reason to plan, a reason to have a family and invest in the future. I want to apply, propose, love, stress, and dream in the next 10 years. Give us something to hold on to because we ask ourselves if we will live as long as our parents. I ask you all to declare a climate emergency and pass a Green New Deal because it represents hope at a time we struggle to find the strength, a light in the darkness. Thank you. Okay, so you're taking this incredible action in San Diego, Nikayla, and like, what's happening with the grief as you're doing this work, as you're sitting in the lobby, you're writing the declaration? Like, are you feeling it differently? Are you harnessing it? When I first rode the elevator up, I felt paralyzed by my fear and my grief. But then over the course of this week, I felt it melt away. Because for the first time, this pain that was welled up inside of me, I could show someone. And I literally showed them. Every time they left their office, they would have to see me like actually crying on their floor <laughs> about climate change. So this whole action, it really helped me move through the grieving process and see that there is an, an actionable pathway to use my climate grief and have, you know, some sort of outcome. Yeah, it takes an emotion and turns it into something meaningful and purposeful and, and kind of driven. You know, it really reminds me of this quote that we have in All We Can Save from Audre Lorde that our feelings are our most genuine paths to knowledge. And it feels like in this case, Nikayla, your feelings were also your most genuine path to action and your best means of actually moving other people to action. Yeah, I had the chance to, to talk to someone that feels a similar way to me and also uses her emotions and turns them into action. My name is Jackie Patterson. I live in Baltimore with the Senior Director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program at the NAACP. Jackie has been with the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, for the last 10 years. She's an activist and a researcher working at the intersection of women's rights and racial justice. And she's worked with women on climate issues in developing countries around the world and here in the U.S. too. When I started to do this work around environmental and climate justice, it just struck me that when I would be in kind of traditional environmental spaces, how so often I was the only person of color, definitely the only Black person that was in the room. And even when Jackie got the gig she has now, a big climate leadership position with one of the most established, prominent organizations that has been elevating the voice of Black Americans for decades, it was like the more things changed, the more they stayed exactly the same. Case in point, this one time, she was running a big meeting of prominent sustainability experts. She was standing at the entrance waiting for the elevator. This family walked up and tried to hand me the pencil that they used when they were doing the activities because they thought, even though I was wearing like a full-length kind of semi-formal dress, they somehow thought that I was the security guard who was staffing the little stand that I was standing next to. So this is an experience that a lot of Black people face. 
it's demoralizing. And it's just one small example of the kind of day-to-day racism that we face. I asked her how she channels this kind of experience. I have found through organizing that my story is my most effective tool as an organizer. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there's been a moment where you've used your story to convince someone. Yes, there's definitely been times when I have used my story or aspects of my story. I talk about my dad who died of pulmonary fibrosis, which is usually tied to exposure of some kind of toxins and usually tied to smoking. My dad never smoked a day in his life and also met another person in Henderson, Indiana, whose wife died of lung disease. She lived two blocks away from a coal fire power plant and had never smoked a day in her life either. And so I'm able to tie my story with other people's stories to say that his experience is linked with other people's experience. And it's actually a, a pattern in our communities. I feel like that's the story of being Black in America. I mean, the past 400 years, being treated as a tool of capitalism and your body and your labor is for profit for another, for a white man. So I feel like Black people, Black communities particularly, are more able to deal with the climate crisis because of this story that's in our DNA. I definitely agree as messed up as that is. I agree. Um, I think that um, having been brought over as cargo in the holes of ships and having been ripped away from our families and our legacies and our generational wealth to then come over and become the generational wealth of other people is, uh, has taught us a lot about surviving and about making a way out of no way and about perspective. And so the weathering that we've gone through, and as you say, what's in our DNA from that weathering definitely makes us more resilient and uh, makes us able to kind of keep things in perspective in a different way. And that weathering in the soul and the body of the hearts it might not show as much on the outside as kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands but it's you know it's still impactful and it's still harmful and it's still just kind of coping due to repeated and deep trauma it seems like this goes back to the point you were making about climate being really deeply personal to Black people. Yeah, I mean, it is a very personal issue. Climate change, it affects every part of our lives. And for Black people, it's a disproportionate impact. So how has climate change touched your life personally? For me, a lot of it goes back to wildfires. It goes back to the Cedar Fire on my seventh birthday. It goes back to Thomas. Remember that one, Leah, in 2018? Yep. That was my junior year of UCSB, and over the summer, I drove the state from top to bottom through 600 wildfires. And it's right now in the east of the city, a wildfire blackens and burns, and it chars my familiar until it's foreign. My familiar is the home state of California. I've spent my whole life in the state. I've visited every beach along the coast. I've hiked every national park. Pink dawn on Sierra Granite and the rise of the redwoods along the rugged coast, it defined my idea of beauty. But as much as my inner Lord Byron 
loves the landscape of the state. What pulled me out of climate denial and into climate action is not the loss of land, but the loss of lives. And here I find my family and my community. The consequences of climate change hit me the hardest when I think about my brother. He's 12. He has dreams of the future and little asthmatic lungs too. Ash from the wildfires, it embeds in his lungs and it makes him wheeze and struggle to breathe. And that's just an immediate, right now, consequence of the crisis. It hits me hardest when I think about the life that he has ahead of him. A worse level of the existential uncertainty I feel. And how just between the oldest and the youngest of Gen Z, so much of the state and my memories of it will be lost to wildfire. Well, I mean, that's so true. And I've only lived in this state for five years, much less time than you have, Nikayla. But I've seen so much devastation from wildfires. And it's not hard to see climate change in California. And you capture, Nikayla, I think, like the tenderness of this moment so well. And of course, sadly, it's not just wildfires, right? We've got kind of a cocktail of natural disasters that are hitting Black communities across this country and and beyond. That's exactly right. And the second person I spoke to is someone who knows intimately the perils of a warming climate. But she lives in a completely different part of the country, contending with a completely different kind of disaster. I guess blurry is the only word I could use because everything's moving. You got this wind and and this water and it's like you look, but you're scared about the windows breaking. So you back away. That's Princella Tally describing what it's like to live through Hurricane Rita, a category three storm that struck Louisiana in 2005. I I don't know. It's so hard to describe, but that's the best way I could put it into words. It was like looking at a blur in real time. Princella is a Black woman from Pineville, Louisiana, about midway up the state. Her mom is from Pineville, and so are her grandparents. How far back does your family go in Pineville? Oh, wow. Since forever, we are pretty much grounded here. We have family here. We had a lot of family in California as well, but... I mean, we are stone-cold Louisianians. Princella was young when Rita struck. It was the first storm she remembers, and she'll always carry it with her. It really stuck to me. And I think part of what it was was the noise of it. Because I'd never heard, like, a noise like that where you just hear these trees, like, snap, crackle, and pop. And just, it was it was surreal. And it was frightening, but it was like, you want to look outside and see what's happening but you know you're not supposed to. It just felt like being in a whole different world, and it's something that I can't forget, even if I tried to. And that same year, just a month earlier, an even more devastating storm battered the state. The scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. The Big Easy's famous Canal Street, living up to its name. And rising waters will now force officials to evacuate the shelter at the Superdome. Katrina's departure was just the beginning of the misery. I didn't think it was over, but I didn't think it would come to this. But it has come to this. People are now living in parking garages. Others picked up what they could and moved to higher ground on the interstate. Refugees in their own hometown. We're not able to get up and just go. We don't have transportation. I mean, we live in paycheck to paycheck. I mean, it ain't like we could just able to get up and just leave. 
It's impossible to understand the social justice implications of hurricanes in Louisiana without understanding Katrina. Princella happened to be out of the state, but she vividly remembers the trauma of calling her friends and her family, checking in to see whether people were okay. 800,000 people lost their homes and nearly 2,000 people died. It caused a mass migration in the state. Some people in her community moved away and they never moved back because there was no real home to move back to because they had lost everything. And, you know, the people that did stay, they faced all kinds of barriers to getting help. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, they pretty infamously dropped the ball on their whole response in the direct aftermath of the storm. There was inadequate training amongst FEMA executives, supply chain problems, and there were even reports of FEMA officials blocking aid from other private resources. Yeah, and Jackie said that the institutional racism embedded into the Katrina response has carried over even further than that. She worked in disaster recovery after Katrina, and she saw the racism in all kinds of the decisions that were made. The Army Corps of Engineers deciding which levees are going to be reinforced post-Katrina based on a formula that applied points to each levy based on what the economic impact would be if that levy was breached. So it literally institutionalizes the notion that people who can afford to be inundated the least are the ones who are going to get the least protection and the least and the last. It's been 15 years since that record-breaking 2005 hurricane season. So when Princella heard that Hurricane Laura, one of this season's storms, was coming up the coast, it triggered a kind of deep dread. Because if someone had asked me before Laura how I would feel about it, oh, it's okay, I've been in storms before, I should be fine. But that's not true. It's always scary, it's always painful, and it always triggers something in you that's full of uncertainty and fear and just hoping that you're going to live. Princella said that there are a few things everyone in her community in Louisiana knows to do when they hear a storm coming. Take it seriously. Know where your resources are and make sure your phone is charged. But even a prepared person isn't really prepared if they don't have the money to evacuate or support themselves through the difficult time. And it's amazing to me how people really don't realize the recovery following a storm looks different when you have these financial constraints on you. Like food going bad, it's not like, oh, when the storm passes, I'll go buy more food you know, it's going to take time. You know, Princella's words remind me of this poem by Patricia Smith called Man on the TV Say. And it's imagining a newscaster during Katrina saying, go evacuate. And you imagine that he's a white newscaster saying this to Black communities. And she has this line, uh-huh, like our bodies got wheels and gas. Like at the end of that running, there's an open door with dry and song inside. And it just captures the rawness of an impossible situation that people face when a storm is coming. So I'm curious, Nikayla, how did Princella and her family fare as Hurricane Laura hit? Well, Princella lost power on day one of the storm, and she ended up being out of power for over a week. And by day two, all of her fresh food had gone bad. She drove around her neighborhood, which was now just a tangle of downed power lines, 
just so she could sit in her car for as long as she could with the air conditioning. It was just so hot outside. And so then by by the third or fourth day, I remember having a conversation with my mom and she was like, I wish we could just move away. But, you know, why don't I ever leave here? Princella partnered with her local church in the storm's aftermath, donating things like food, medication, toilet paper. She even brought ice water directly to people's doors, a luxury for households who had been days without power. People cried because they were just at home with nothing. We were out of power for about, like some areas, they were out of power for about three days, some nine, some longer than that. Just to have someone come to your house and give you ice and water was a big deal. And we provided supplies to 75 families. We did that because we knew no one was coming. And we knew we had to figure it out ourselves. I'm curious, Nikayla, about whether Princella had anything to say about whether or not other people in her community are making this connection between climate change and these storms. Do people sort of think of hurricanes as a climate justice issue? Yeah, she did talk about that, actually. Pineville is a pretty conservative-leaning place. They voted for Trump in November. So it's not exactly an easy place to talk about climate. But Princella is a bit of an outlier in her community. She works for the Citizens Climate Lobby, and she's a fellow at Yale in climate communication. You know, she's like a real climate person. So she's comfortable raising the issue now. There's always been that sense of like, keep your head down. You don't want to make people mad. You'll end up, what, fired from a job. You'll end up with all these like punishments and slaps on the hand. Her advice? Don't talk like a climate person. Talk like her mom. That's where I start getting the most like interest and inspiration because it's never like these long speeches I give. It's always like, oh, yeah, you know, we need to do something about the weather and our impact on it because you know what happened at this person's house. And then people are like, oh, yeah, you're right. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's all I had to say. But I tend to like go into more of those technical terms the deeper I get into the space. And I don't see that happening with her. I feel like Princella's experience here is just such a strong lesson for the climate movement that, you know, starting with people's lived reality really works. And it's not surprising because, you know, for so many Black Americans, climate impacts, fossil fuel impacts, these aren't theoretical. They are lived experiences. Turns out that smacking people with facts is not always the best way forward. <laughs> Although, what's interesting, right? When we think about lived reality, we start to see that show up in facts, right? We see it in polling data that 57% of Black Americans are concerned or alarmed about climate change. That number is 49% for white Americans, and it jumps up to 69% for Latinx Americans. So, Naturally, if you're facing this reality more intimately day in and day out, you're going to be more concerned. Yeah. And, you know, even in some research that I've done with Parrish Burquist and Madel Mildenberger, you know, we find that Hispanic and Black Americans are the most supportive of ideas like the Green New Deal. And I think that the climate movement broadly has woken up to these facts this year. They have started to understand that climate justice is racial justice. And I'm sure, Nikayla, you've had a front row seat to this transformation. And so, you know, how is this change happening? That was something I spoke about with Princella too. 
how do we stop tokenizing Black involvement in the climate movement and get back to a place where we aren't just there to check a box or make white people feel good about themselves? How do we harness our grief and resilience to make the climate movement stronger? I think the white environmental movement kind of had this this moment back in June after George Floyd died. And it was like a moment of reckoning in the environmental community. I mean, you had the Sierra Club put out a statement that they stand with Black lives. That was really unexpected. I think that's just a sign that things are adapting and changing and these old white environmentalists are more open to their ideas about inclusion and diversity and what climate change really means. Um, these, these views that they hold, they're, they're changing. Do you see that at all? I do see that. I think on the flip side of that, what's concerned me is that it's it had to be something so extreme that they had to see to start coming to terms with that. When it's like you could have you could have listened to us a long time ago. But it's like, why do things have to have to come to a head in this way? But at least the change is starting. And it's always rubbed me a bit wrong when we do have older white environmentalists or people in power saying, this is what we'll do and communities of color will benefit from it. Well, how do you know? You know, like you don't even know that. You're not part of that community. So when you're telling me that and I see no team behind you that supports that, that looks like me, or that's advocating for that, that looks like me, then we have some sort of conflict happening. It's an internal conflict of, you know, I'm not sure exactly what your motives are. Maybe you do really want to help. But if you don't have the understanding there, you may actually just be helping yourself while you're convincing yourself you're helping us. Yeah, I feel like this this lack of diversity within the climate movement is one of the biggest weaknesses And I've thought a lot about how to address this issue and how to make it more inclusive. Um, Because like like you're saying, like if you have a bunch of white people advocating for policy and they they take it into communities of color, the people that live there are going to regard it with some kind of suspicion. Like, who are you? Why are you here? Do you have our best interest at heart? Like considering history, probably not. So I, I guess I just don't really know what to do about that. I agree with you. And for me, it's it's so interesting, that fine line. And it should be there because rightfully, what will happen if you have, quote unquote, my best interests at heart, and then it hits a point where you don't need me anymore. And then those interests go away. You know, you don't just need me as a number or a person of color. And so I guess the best way I've navigated through that is just by being really brutally honest that this is not how it should be, you know, and and I'm not a person to look at as, oh, you know, you being that one Black woman in the room shows that things are changing. It's like, no, incorrect. You know, I'm here, but I'm hoping that a lot more of us would be here because just me in the room standing out this way is a problem in itself. And I say that and I'm, I'm not apologetic about it. And I think that helps because it's it's addressing the, the need and it's addressing the lack that's still there. And I'm not going to use my presence to justify that things are getting better 
when they should be way farther along? Yeah. Uh, For me, it's like I think about the effects of climate change and knowing that communities of color will be impacted the most. So it's we have to be the ones to lead the policy here because in the end, it's going to affect us the most. I think it's an issue with time and resources and accessibility for why more people of color aren't in the climate movement. But then I also think there's this tension historically where environmentalism has been so white. But I don't really consider this to be an environmental issue. I mean, I think it's I think it's a justice issue. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that makes me think again about funding, you know, and putting money into communities that need it because the more financial support that's there, the more people can actually advocate for things that matter to them that they wouldn't have the time to otherwise. It's sort of like when you speak about justice, okay, if we're going to, let's say we divest from fossil fuels, we invest in clean energy. Well, are we going to also invest, you know, in job placement programs and things that don't favor elitism and really does support that just transition? And I just think the mark is missed so often and often, you know, usually by white people with good intentions where it's like if we do this one thing, you know, it fixes it all. But there are so many layers and so many complexities and you're not going to have a lot of people show up the way they could if you don't support them in ways that can help improve their lifestyles as a whole. I love what you all touch on in this conversation, Nikayla, because climate solutions are not some kind of magic fairy dust that gets us to a more equal and more just future. We have to pay attention to how we move climate action forward, paying attention to who benefits and who decides and how drawbacks get mitigated. And that depends on people having the support and the funding to be at the table to shape those things in the first place. Yeah, you know, I feel like we saw this play out in Georgia with the election, which I know Catherine lives in Georgia and saw this up up close. But it's like if we actually give resources to organizing in communities of color, like we can transform politics, we can make changes. And I think the same thing has to be happening in the climate movement. We have to think about, you know, what groups are we funding? You know, where are resources flowing? How are we even financing those groups to allow them? to use their own voices to fight the fossil fuel system. But there's an incredible imbalance in climate philanthropy today, right? I mean, there's incredible work that's being done by the Hive Fund and others to try to right that ship. But most climate funding goes to efforts run by white men. And we see smaller grassroots groups led by women of color that are doing really transformational work that may just be getting a pittance from foundations that could support this work to such a greater degree. I feel like there's no one better to solve the issues in their community than people who actually live in the community. And they're not these white men that head these environmental organizations. They're these small grassroots community efforts that are truly fighting for themselves. And I feel like we really need to pivot away from this, you know, writing a big 
blank check to these national environmental organizations and focus on building local community power. It also seeds the ground for potential political power shifts, like what we did see in Georgia. Georgia flipped blue, not because the Democratic Party went in there a month before, you know, and made some phone calls, but it was because local grassroots organizations worked for years to build that kind of power. And, you know, Nikayla, I know you've been doing exactly this kind of organizing in San Diego for, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, I've been hard at work here in San Diego. I was one of the founders of my Sunrise Hub here. And over the past year, not only just working in this election, but also working to build local community power. Because outside of voting in an election, community power matters. It matters when COVID hits and we need money for mutual aid funds. It matters when we want to show up in the streets for Black lives. It's important to have these networks of community in place so that when your community is suffering, that there are people who are willing and able to respond. And it feels to me actually like the climate movement, the white climate movement, has a lot to learn from Black communities about how to do this well. The climate crisis isn't something we can get through individually. It's going to require a massive, coordinated, and collective effort. Not just to survive, right? But to get to a place where we're able to live meaningful, happy lives again. And climate grief really has a key part in this process. The longer we stay in denial, the longer it takes for us to reach this place of acceptance where we can admit that our way of life is unsustainable and it's harmful. And in the next world, we need to feel it. We need to build a world with people at the center and we need to build it with empathy. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Leah Stokes, and by me, Katherine Wilkinson. Very special thanks to Nikayla Jefferson for guest hosting the show this week. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Sydney Bartone, and Stephen Lacey produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. A special thanks to the funders and supporters who made this show possible. The Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, UC Santa Barbara, and others. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or any other place you get your shows. Or go to our website, DegreesPod.com. And you can follow both of us, the pod, and our production team on Twitter. You'll find our accounts on the website and in the show notes. Stay with us as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Look, we tell stories for the climate curious. Okay, Gavin? <laughs> womp, womp, womp. <laughs>